A few years ago, I had a couple of people in the industry telling me, do you know what, you shouldn't really talk about it. You're, you're maybe a wee bit unemployable because people will think you're a head case. But when, when kids fail exams in school, my advice is always, look, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't dictate your future. And I'm like, well, you know, I thought that the, the weight was the problem, but it wasn't, it was just a symptom. Changing the Headlines Leadership Podcast with your host, Stephen McLeish. Making the world a better place by adding value one person at a time. Impacting the world by impacting your world. Bringing you love, life, and energy. So stay seated, keep your arms and legs inside the vehicle at all times, because it's about to blow your mind. Three, two, one, and we have liftoff. Hi there guys, my name is Stephen McLeish and I am your host and welcome to the Dream School Podcast where you have permission to dream big and each week we bring you an inspiring message or an inspiring person and today we have an inspiring person, we've got Tom Yuri, and Tom is a musician, he's a composer, he's an actor, he's uh, brought out albums, he's uh, sang in the BBC Proms, uh, he's had TV credits such as Chewing the Fat, Karen Dunbar, uh, Still Game, he's most notably known for uh, Big Bob and the popular Scottish soap opera River City and he's also had movie credits like the Oscar nominated movie Illusionist, he's also been in Transporting 2 and Bucking Hell which stars uh, Simon Pegg and he's um, came over so much in his own life which is just an inspiration to so so many so first of all tom thank you so much for coming on the show thank you stephen thanks for having me how are you i am very well and i hope you're well as well ah i'm all right yeah yeah so, <laughs> so this is episode one uh, so thank you so much for <laughs> taking the risk and being no problem you know you start at the bottom and work your way up mate that's how it goes so yeah I actually thought the opposite. I thought I was uh, putting a stand up for you, to be honest. I'm being self-depreciating and then, 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 whatever the word is. <laughs> Love it. Uh, so, the podcast, Tom, is called Dream School. So, just imagine with me for a moment that... Okay. Uh, <laughs> just, that you're in a school and mm -hmm. it's different from the school we have ever been to. And every class has got someone does that. There's a place that you can go and you can dream big. So one place might have Richard Branson teaching entrepreneurship. One place mm -hmm. have Elon Musk teaching, I don't know, the future. <laughs> it's like, mm -hmm. And then we've got Tom teaching musician and teaching acting and just and more on the advice and that stuff. So that's what we want to really um, unpack in these, these episodes. But I don't know about you, Tom, but the biggest teachers that impacted me was the ones who kind of let that guard down and you got to know who they really were. Absolutely. And Absolutely. I, I really would love, and I think it's just such an amazing person. You're a legend. So I think we need to get to know you. So could you just tell us a bit of history of Tom? What was it like growing up? What, what was life like for Tom? It was strange because I am... Um... You, you talk about how there would be a dream classroom where it would be me teaching music and acting. I don't know how to teach music and acting because I, I wasn't taught. So I don't know how you do it. So I don't know how to teach somebody how to play the piano or the guitar because I could just do it as a little boy. It was a kind of odd, um, oh, how can I put it? 
um, people call me Music Rain Man because uh, it's almost like a kind of disorder that I've got. <laughs> um, what happened when I was about three or four, I was in nursery school and the staff called my parents and said, can you come down, but don't let them see you sneak in. And it was because I had sat down at a xylophone and started playing The Entertainer by Scott Joplin just by ear and, and had never been near a keyboard before. I had just started playing it. So they, they kind of came in and watched from the corner and they said, right, he's, it's something musical with them. So their answer to that was to get me to play the violin, which I loathed. <laughs> but uh, from, you know, I, I just was obsessed with music since I was a tiny little boy. I was obsessed with Simon and Garfunkel. Um, I had a record player, I just played and lived for music and it was my main thing. And the rest of life was a little bit of a puzzle. Um, I didn't tremendously fit in or socialize easily with other kids. I did, you know, I'm not saying that I was I was an outsider or anything, but I just, I wasn't, I wasn't predisposed to like football or to like, um, any of the other kind of stuff that you're meant to be into when you're a kid. I just was obsessed with music. That's all I cared about. And having a laugh and stuff as well. But music was, was mainly my, my, my absolute number one focus in life. And it's never changed. Um, it, was, it was a real um, security thing as a child. And it still is now. Um, I use music all the time. Uh, to get excited, to get comfortable, to get um, inspired. Um, it's, it's like breathing for me and it, it's, it's, a, it's like a, a cop memory, it's like a baby womb memory music for me. It's just been, it just flows through me. That sounds terrible, but it just, <laughs> it, it just the music flows through me, you know, but... Uh, yeah, I get what you're saying. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's like oxygen for me. <laughs> and so, like school, like obviously you've done really well in music. How were you academically in school? Failed music at school because, yeah, um, I wasn't able to write or read music. I've never been able to. Uh, I've got no idea why, uh, but it's just never been a thing that's that's happened for me. Um, I, I kind of did scrape a pass on appeal in music in secondary school, but practically with music. Uh, that I had a really inspiring teacher at secondary school called Mr. Dool, who obviously spotted something in me. And uh, I didn't have a piano at home. So I, uh, I, was, I, I could only play piano at school. And uh, the, the headmaster was quite a stern kind of old school Hogwarts, scary headmaster and, and kids were banned from the school premises at lunchtime and uh, the interval, but uh, this music teacher fought for me to be able to stay in at lunch times because it was the only time that I could ever play the piano. So the only time I could get near a piano was at lunch times in school, and that's what I did. Wow, that's dedicated. He, he did. He really came through for me, that guy, you know, and he really uh, he spotted it. And, and and academically, I couldn't do it because it was all. I think music in schools has changed now. I think it's more about the practicalities of it. But back then it was theory and it was writing and it was classical music, which I love classical music, but I kind of get my head around it a lot of the time. Um, and I, so I did my higher music project on Lennon and McCartney as songwriters and it got a big fat D because, no yeah, because it was uh, seen as pop music.
by the exam. I mean, this was the 80s, so you still, you're probably somebody in the 70s marking it, but just, I don't know. But uh, today I would pass, probably. Yeah, I, I'm sure you would, and I'm sure um, they're regretting that right now. <laughs> How far well, they pro probably did now, so who cares? <laughs> but it's the thing, you know, I mean, I, 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 I did fail my higher music, um, but I did end up standing on stage singing uh, Puccini with a huge massive orchestra so it, that w when when kids fail exams in school my advice is always look you know it doesn't it doesn't dictate your future um, if something happens loads of things come along in life that present themselves for you and loads of things come out of the blue and opportunities don't not happen for you because you failed an exam in school that's just a small part of your life and it doesn't dictate your future so you can go from failing music to standing singing in front of 8,000 people messing dormer. You know, it's, nothing's impossible. So I agree with that. I'm mm -hmm. like severely dyslexic. And yeah. I was taught that all my life. Like, I've, obviously that came with a lot of failures. Mm -hmm. I've just really learned that everyone is a genius. They just need to learn how to embrace that, you know? Absolutely. I mean, I think everybody's got something in them, and I think part of life's battle is actually um, finding what that is and then concentrating on it. But I, I've I've done so many different things that actually I can't settle on one thing and concentrate on it long enough to be successful at really anything, massively successful at anything. Um, so I mean, I like that because I've got a short attention span, but at the same time, it would be nice to just, you know, go on with something instead of changing my mind all the time. And, and I, I read, um, I was doing a bit of research on, on you today. That uh -huh. just sounds bad, but I was doing a bit of research. No, it's fine. Um, and I, I read somewhere, is it right that you were, uh, used to be next door neighbours to Jared Butler? Yeah. Um, that's a strange one, isn't it? Uh, when I was up to the age of five, I lived in Gallow Hill in Paisley, and my next door neighbour was my pal Gerard. And then we moved away when I was five, and I never ever saw him again until I was in the cinema watching a film called uh, Reign of Fire about dragons. And there he was. <laughs> and I went, that's, that's Gerard, my next door neighbour. So, no, you, we, were, we were kind of best mates up until. We were five, but then when I moved, you know, he was at a different school and stuff, so I've not seen him since I was five, but we were best buddies. And uh, I remember us putting on puppet shows together and stuff. No way. But yeah, yeah, but um, no, I've not seen the guy since I was five. But I, it was, he, I was in, uh, he was in the next close, but it was the same back garden. So we, we went out playing all the time. That's brilliant. I know, <laughs> and I'm sure I'm sure you guys will pass all cross and uh, end up working together. Well, you know, I may get an aftershave advertising campaign. You never know. Might be me <laughs> next. Where his voice over. I know. Uh -huh. We've got different accents, but uh, it's, we grew up the same thing. No, but he. Uh, I mean, he gets quite a rough time about his accent. But he actually moved to Canada when he was. I can't lived there for a long time, so that's why his accents, it's like Greg Hempel's, that's why their accents, uh, mid-Atlantic, they're not putting it on for effect, that's the actual thing. Yeah, yeah definitely. Mm -hmm. so just let's touch on it a bit of your, your personal life, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was surprised to find out that you actually struggled with, just surprised because I didn't know, 
uh, you struggled a bit with addiction back in the day. Uh-huh. Um, could you just, how did that happen? How did you overcome that? Because you've been, how, how many years now you've been sober? Uh, 19 years sober now. Um, I, uh, yeah, I just, you know, it was the 90s. You know, if you remember the 90s, you were only there. <laughs> um, I had uh, I had a problem with alcohol and uh, I got help for it, you know, and um, I've managed to stay sober for 19 years and uh, it now doesn't really enter my head anymore about drinking. Um, I, I would say that I've got an addictive personality um, and it can all be about I think depression and anxiety have got a lot to do with why I was drinking. And I think when I was drinking, depression and anxiety weren't really present because I was medicating with that. So then when you take that away, you don't have the medication anymore. So then, you know, whatever's going on inside your head can present itself, let's put it that way. And you no longer have the uh, anesthetic so yeah, I, I gave up drinking. I had one of these uh, one of these mornings where you wake up and say, "I'm never drinking again," and uh, I didn't. <laughs> I did, genuinely that morning, I kept my promise and I just didn't do it again. Good man, it, like you, you've. I've just like seen you like from afar, just overcoming um, obstacles, and it's inspirational, mate. Absolutely inspirational. Um, the one of the ones that it almost like it basically went viral. Yeah. Like your weight loss journey. Yeah. It was everywhere at one point. Like everywhere, it was in. It was just everywhere. Yeah. Just, just talk us a bit about that. Like, uh, yeah. What, what, what was the um, the weight you started and how how much did you, did you lose? Well, I don't tell anybody what weight I was, and I'll give you the reason why. Um, I always find that whenever anyone in the media talks about weight or obesity it's always about shame so they always weigh the person and go look at how awful this is and they usually make the person stand on the scales in their pants there's usually a backing track that goes bum, 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 you know and they kind of make a laugh out of it and it's attacking so i don't think we should be weighing people and shaming them um i did lose 19 stone um, so I mean, you can you can do the maths if you want, but I I, I got I got gastric surgery. I got a gastric bypass to get that. Um, I did have to lose some weight before I got that, but um, that was the thing that saved my life uh, because I had got to a weight where I was almost immobile. And uh, you know, I know some people that have had it that that keep it a secret, you know, and say. Uh, I'm just going to lose the weight, and then if anybody asks, you know, I just decided uh, to be completely upfront about it from the word go because it's that whole shame thing that's attached to it. Why, you know, um, why should it be anything to be embarrassed about or to be ashamed about? Uh, my, my argument was always nobody would choose to be that size. So there's stuff going on in somebody's life that makes them want to, uh, that makes them need to eat that amount and makes them immobile, makes them not want to leave the house, all that kind of stuff, life events, whatever, uh, a predisposed genetic thing, maybe meeting a predisposed anxiety, depression thing that can all result in a horrific addiction problem or a horrific food problem. 
uh, which was the answer for me. But it got to the stage where I was too big to diet, if that makes sense. It was that wouldn't have made a difference. So I went down the path. A few uh, a few really bizarre coincidences happened that I won't go into, but. I ended up being able to get this surgery and within 18 months I had lost it all um, and it, it kind of didn't all just happen automatically. I became addicted to walking, um, I, I became very active, I started getting going to a gym and getting training so it's not something that would have happened on its own. If I, had, if I hadn't done any of that I would have lost probably about half of what I did. But because I combined it with um, exercise, and the reason why I, I, I did the exercise was because it felt joyful, because I hadn't been able to do anything like that for years and years and years, so it felt absolutely joyful to be able to. I remember, um, remember the first time I walked into Glasgow, and, I, and everything had changed. You know, I'd driven through it and been in taxis, but I hadn't actually walked about. Um, and there was new shops, and there was things had been knocked down, and <laughs> it was just, it was almost like being given the key to uh, a theme park, and being given the, uh, being given the freedom of the city, like being reborn, because I had been so stuck, and I had been, you know, I'd had a lot of dark thoughts when I was at my heaviest, I just, people constantly told me I was going to die. You know, that was that was people, and they were try, they were saying that from a point of view of trying to get me to do something about about it. But when I was in that position, I was I was severely overweight, very immobile, and I had depression and anxiety. So I didn't have any strength to do anything. Um, and at that time, I was well, just before that. I mean, it got worse. But at that time, I was doing River City, so. Um, I was playing a character on screen that was dealing with that stuff too. Uh, he was dealing with it a lot better than me. <laughs> but um, that it was almost like I had been given a second chance at life. So uh, when that weight started falling off and when I started having this new, it was like getting a new pair of glasses. It was like coming out of a sauna and jumping into a plunge pool. It was like, um, it was like getting, it was like getting a new body. Yeah. But but my head still thought I was that big. It's very, very strange. You know, it's very, very odd because this year when the depression and anxiety returned, I thought, well, I'm not I'm not that size anymore. So why am I depressed? Why have I got anxiety? And I'm like, well, you know, I thought that the, the weight was the problem, but it wasn't, it was just a symptom. Yeah. So the weight was a symptom of what is going on with me, which is anxiety and depression generally about being on this planet and I can remember feeling like this as a tiny little boy there's no reason I can just remember being frightened and I remember being I remember being in my cot and I don't know what age you are when you get out of your cot and you move into a bed but I remember being in my cot and I remember being scared um and when I was a kid with this thing called grape mixture don't know if it's still about but it was this kind of like liquid stuff to soothe you as a baby and it was probably baby it was probably gin you know so my first memory is of um my first memory is of fear being chased away by putting something in my mouth and swallowing it so wow. a, a sweet possibly alcoholic liquid quelling fear so i uh 
I still have a lot of fear and anxiety in my life. Um, but for the past few years, since the weight loss, really, uh, it's been manageable and I've been okay with it. But th this past month, this past five, six weeks, it has been back with a vengeance. And luckily, I've had enough experience and I was spared enough um, resilience to be able to to have whatever 10 20 percent part of me was still okay to go no no not happening phone the doctor um reach out to people my um my big first protocol was i spilled it out on facebook i just went i'm not right i need everybody to know that i'm not right uh for the same way that i don't think that there should be shame attached to somebody that's got an obesity problem there should be no shame attached to the fact that somebody is having depression and anxiety so if i had the flu or a cold and i was on facebook i would say oh, i've got a rotten cold there should be no difference and the problem is especially in the west of scotland with males in the west of scotland people do not want to talk about the fact that they're struggling, they're getting better at it, you know, yeah. they're getting better. People like you, Stephen, you know, your videos that you've made, when I saw that, when I saw the first I, I, I got to know you was seeing that uh, video you made about anxiety and it hit the nail on the head because when I heard some of the things you said, I went, I thought I was the only person that ever felt like that. And every time I share about stuff, I get messages from people going, ah, oh, Right, I thought that was just me. And I'm going, no, it's, we're, we're all struggling with the same kind of stuff. And with lockdown, we're all getting a lot of the same symptoms. Yeah. Um, so once you'd realize that it's not just you and you're not um, alone in this, it doesn't, it, it doesn't cure you, but it makes you realize that it's actually a thing that can be dealt with. Yeah. because you can see people dealing with it. So you see people overcoming it, you see people dealing with it. That is why I honestly share now about depression. I talk about this now more than I do about my weight journey. The depression and the anxiety it is a pandemic and it is going to be, it's going to be a huge challenge when we come out of COVID, whenever that is, because you've had people that have been locked in the house. You'll have a lot of people that have been locked in the house with um, unideal situations. There'll be there'll have been domestic violence. There'll have been kids that have been um, with, with neglectful or abusive parents or guardians. It's going to be something that is going to have to be dealt with. And I think that we've got a responsibility as um, people that that suffer from it and that have levels of overcoming it to yell about it and go right. And I don't, I don't know where to go for this. I don't know where to go for the help for this. Um, because when I did before have depression and I went to my doctor, uh, they're, they're fast at giving you medication and I don't knock medication and I have used it and I am on it again at the moment. I think it can be great for pulling you out of things, but you need to get to the, the root cause of what's going on. And I was put on a six month waiting list before for uh, psychiatry. And when I got there, it just wasn't, it, it just was, oh, I don't want to slag it off, but it just didn't, it, it didn't touch the sides, if you know what I mean, it just didn't work. And uh, the psychiatrist had to go on maternity leave and the funding wasn't there to replace the psychiatrist, so I was left again. So uh, I don't trust the fact that there's enough of a, a system there in place to deal with what's coming. 
because it's not there to deal with what we already have. And even a couple of weeks ago, when I was talking to my GP, I said, look, I really want to, I don't want to just go on medication for this. I want to, I want to find out what it is. And they said, oh, well, there's this great resource. Here's the website. I went onto the website, tried to log in. I'm, I'm quite technical. I'm quite good with IT and computer systems. And I couldn't find anything in it. And then eventually when I spoke to a helpline, they said, oh, it's just England. You have to go to NHS Scotland for that. And I thought, right. And then I went to NHS Scotland and I couldn't find anything. And I just gave up. So I thought, well, if I can't find anything, and I'm a geek, I'm a computer geek, how, how is somebody that's hanging off a cliff going to find it? So we need to figure out how we get out of this. We need to, I, I can't be, you know, I, I don't know how to organise it, but somebody has to go, here's the number. You know, there's, there's great numbers that are help, that, that, that are the, the mind charity, there's great helplines and stuff, but there needs to be a the doctors you know for this there needs to be a you, you, you know a system in place for somebody that wants to kill themselves because the last thing they're going to do is tell everybody I'm, I'm about to kill myself very rarely do you get somebody saying i'm a way to kill myself yeah they just do it so um how do we do it i don't know but we need to, but it's getting better because we're now seeing it. And now, a few years ago, I had a couple of people in the industry telling me, do you know what, you shouldn't really talk about this because you're making yourself make a, you're making yourself look a wee bit like a lunatic. Really? Um, you're, you're maybe a wee bit unemployable because people will think you're a head case. And I took that as, you know, I thought, well, I better shut up about it then. But I think as I've got older and as I've realised that I did come out of that last bout that lasted a couple of years and then great things happened in my career and I was quite open about having suffered depression, I went, do you know what? Actually, no. Um, the world is changing. People's attitudes towards this is changing. And I can now say, I'm not well. I'm going to try and get better. And it doesn't mean that I'm condemned to never working again or never being taken seriously again or being called a crackpot because I'm not. I've got a, I've got an illness the same as somebody that would break their arm or that would have, you know. I've got, and, and it needs dealt with, and I need help with it. And if I start shouting about it, and I didn't realise that the fact that I was talking about it and that you talk about it, Stephen, and other other friends of mine talk about it, people contact you and go, oh, I've got the same problem, I've got the same thing. Where, where, how did you do it? And I go, well, I did this for a start. And then, so it becomes a chain reaction of people. It needs to start in people's communities. So you know how when the lockdown first happened and there was a little bit of a wartime spirit, there was people doing each other's shopping, there was people speaking to their neighbours that they'd never met before. We need to look out for each other in our own individual communities and we need to figure out how we approach this because uh, if we wait for the government and the mental health services to be equipped enough to deal with the i mean i don't want to be the harbinger of doom but i think there is a tsunami of mental health problems coming after this lockdown we need to we need to start it me and you need to start it margaret down the road needs to start it you know everybody needs to just have a wee look around themselves and go, is everybody all right? Are we okay? My friend Jenny Godley talks about this. She talks about getting on your emotional life jacket and keeping your family afloat. Keeping an eye on your friends, phoning people going, are you all right? Is there anything you want to talk about? Is there anything going on, anything I can do to help? 
we all need to start doing that. It's, it's almost like when uh, Nicola Sturgeon talks about us all wearing masks and it's to protect the community. It's not about protecting yourself from getting the virus, it's about protecting the community. We need to get, um, we need to get mental health masks to that, that sounds dark. God, I don't even know what I'm talking about now. But you know what I mean by it. We need to. We need to actually. We need to look at our immediate circle of people. And if everybody does that, then that's a bigger support system than we'll ever get waiting on a mental health service to do it. It's it's so good, and I always tell people, you know, the um, your mind is a limp. It can get sick like the rest of the body. Um, Aye. But you know, there's good news on that as well. It can get healed like rest of the body, and and I'm totally, I'm totally with you. I've the same experience. I went to my GP, and it was a an outdated leaflet, and it was, <laughs> it was to go to an anxiety group. And the last thing I wanted to do was go and be with people, and it was a four month waiting list. So I'm totally, I'm totally with you on that. Um, I think there's just, I think you're right in saying that we are going to see there's going to be a the real virus is going to be mentally. We're going to see a mental health virus, and uh, f- thank you so much for sharing so openly with that. And you know, something like your um, Facebook post encouraged me in the last couple of weeks, and have made me to be because I'm known as someone that's quite open and transparent w- with us. But at each stage, it's taken me a long time. And recently, I just seen you so open about it, and it, I opened up to my wife about it, and it, you know. A lot of Amazing. Amazing. It is, but other people are opening up about it. That's what needs to happen, and it's wonderful. It's great to see because um, I get inspiration from people as well. When I saw your video about anxiety, there was stuff you said in that that I went, oh, it never occurred to me that that's tied to anxiety. Um, Cancelling plans, um, you know, saying, yeah, I'll see you on Tuesday, and then Tuesday comes and you can't bear the thought of leaving the house, and then you worry about phoning them and going, look, I can't make it. But if I go, look, I'm struggling with something here and, and, if, and I can't leave the house. Most of my pals now know, if I say, I'll see you on Tuesday, they now know that there's a chance that I might call off. And they kind of almost say now, I'll see you on Tuesday if you feel up for it. And I go, great. And that won't last forever. That's lasting while I get back in my feet from this latest episode. Um, the past two weeks I've been uh, free of depression. I've had, I've had daily anxieties that have been manageable, but I'm coming out of the other side of it again. And it's important for me to share about the fact that I'm feeling better now as well, because when you see somebody, uh, because when you're in it, you'll know if you've suffered from anxiety, you'll know that when you're in it, you think the world's gonna end. You think that there's no way you're ever gonna stop feeling like this because it can last for days at a time. There was a there was a period a few weeks ago where I couldn't sit in a chair because I was so anxious. I couldn't sit down and I was going, this normally ends by now. This normally ends. Why is it not ending? And it felt like it never would. And uh, it was just people people communicating with me going, you'll be all right. You'll be all right. You were all right last time. You'll be all right this time. And hanging on to that like um, a tow rope behind somebody that's been through it, you know? Uh, it's the thing that, that got me through it again and, and here I am uh, up and showered and ready and, and chatting about it and I'm okay and I'm, I'm calm. I'm, I've had eight coffees today so it's not probably not helping but it, it, it passes, it always passes and 
bad things don't always pass, but your reaction to them, uh, if you've got anxiety and depression, they pass, you know, and there's no shame. I, I'm a big advocate of going to the doctor and talking about it. That's really important to be able to get out of something that is um, that's seemingly impossible because even they can even get, just by talking to you, they can explain. The first time I phoned my GP in this current uh, season of depression, season two, um, my GP explained, uh, they were great, they phoned to me for about 20 minutes, explained exactly what was going on in my brain with the chemistry of it. They were saying, this is what's going on, this is what's triggered this. I explained about uh, what had been happening in the few weeks previous to, to, to this, and they were going, well, look, it looks as if that your isolation and your lockdown has been a build-up to what is happening now. Uh, there's a very, very low level of serotonin in your brain. Um, we'd recommend that you do this, but this is what's going to be happening over the next fortnight, and if this happens, give us a phone and we'll tell you. So I did. I phoned probably three, four times within that two weeks. I phoned my doctors again. They phoned me back within an hour and they were able to talk to me about what was going on. They were saying, right, the reason why your anxiety has spiked so high is because your serotonin level is coming back up. Um, it's going to take a few weeks for it all to settle down again and you're going to be able to be in a position again where you can manage your life properly. And none of this that you're feeling that the world's going to explode is real. It's not real. Sit down, breathe, calm down, put on some music, go out for a walk, you're okay. So I was very lucky in that my GP, I've been there for 25 years, they know my history, um, and they, they just talked me through it. And even if you phone your doctor, they're not going to immediately suggest that you, you go on medication, but they'll tell you what's going on. Yeah. And when you hear from somebody that knows what they're talking about, what's going on, it makes it real and it makes it dealable with. It's like I, I, watch, uh, I watch the press briefing every day for the coronavirus updates. Okay. And... It's not always great news, but it's actual facts. So I go, well, there's the facts of what's going on. It's not, you know, a, a zombie apocalypse like what I was thinking it was an hour ago. That's what's happening, that's where it's happening, that's the practicalities of it, and this is what I need to do in order to stay safe and protect others. So when it's down in black and white, and it's a reality, then my brain that, that creates horror movies in my head is reassured and I can, uh, I can calm down and look at things practically. So if you're suffering from anxiety, all sorts of terrible thoughts can go through your mind. Phone a GP, they'll tell you what's going on and they'll tell you why it's happening. And that doesn't cure it, but it can help you because you go, oh, there isn't a demon <laughs> in my house. <laughs> there might be a demon, but there isn't one at the moment. <laughs> so good, that's great advice. Um, Absolutely great advice. So we've we've got we've got really got to know you <laughs> through <laughs> that bit, um, especially. Uh, so when high school and that was finished for Tom, what was the what, what did you pursue? Did you go straight into music acting, or was there something in? I um I had a very I, I see when you look back on life. And I mean, I sound like an old man about to die, but see, when you look back on life, you can see crossroads and you can see little things that happen that you go, man, if that didn't happen, what would have happened? So there are events that happened in my life that are, um, there's a book called The Celestine Prophecy that talks about uh, coincidences. 
um, and maybe little bits of divine intervention or something, but there are little things that have happened along my life that have taken me on paths and I go, wow, that, you couldn't, I couldn't have wished for that. So when I was uh, 19 years old, I'd left school, I wasn't doing anything. I was, I was kind of playing in bands in Paisley and I didn't really have, um, I didn't really have any idea of, of what I could do with my life because all that there was in Paisley was playing in bands. And that that was so kind of, my, my parents were freaking out about it. My brother and sister had been academically very good. They both went into teaching. My brother was a headmaster. My sister was a primary school teacher. And I was this kind of odd um, guy that just wanted to do music. And, and at that time, the only kind of professional career path you could take would be classical music. And I couldn't read music. It might be a form of musical dyslexia, but I couldn't ever get a grasp of it. I can play you any instrument and I can play you any song on any instrument, but I can't, if you put down a songbook in front of me, no, nah, can't happen. So uh, I was on the dole and I got one of these restart interviews that we used to get uh, back in the, it was 1988. And uh, I went in and, you know, uh, they, 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 I was expecting somebody going, well, you'll just have to go and get a trade or you'll have to get an apprenticeship or something. But I got, and I'll never, I'll never remember this guy's name, but I, I managed to get a groovy guy <laughs> in, in the social security that, that said, what, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I'm a bit stuck. I, all I want to do is music, but I can't do classical music and I don't know what to do. And he went, you know, it's really strange because this morning I just got an information pack in from this college in Perth that does a rock music um, course. Would you like to see that? And I went, hi. So he gave me this leaflet and it was uh, Perth College Rock Music HNC. And I thought, that's ridiculous. How can you, you know, and, and it wasn't, I thought rock music as in heavy metal music, but it just meant modern music. Yeah. So I spoke to my parents about it and they said, well, okay, you had to go up to Perth to do an audition for it. And I went up and auditioned and uh, they kind of said, you can't read music. And I said, yeah, I know, but I, you know, I really want to do this. So I auditioned. Um, and then about three weeks later, I got a letter saying that I'd got in, which I, so my parents went, right, well, away you go then, you know, go and try this. So I went up there and it just was the perfect thing. I got confidence, I got uh, an inc incredible bunch of people that I met that I'm still close to nowadays. Uh, I did two years there and it completely and utterly changed my life. And I had never really sang before I went there. I went up there as a, a piano major, but three months into it, I switched majors to singing. And then, uh, so the only kind of proper training I've had as a musician is as a vocalist. So I know how to look after my voice and I know how to project and, and, and sing. So I had an inspirational teacher there called Pam who kind of spotted things in me. And I ended up from having failed music at school, I ended up after two years, I got the highest marks and I won a trophy at college. I got the, I got the top award uh, up there for that and still couldn't read music, still can't. But uh, all the practicalities of uh, the modern music industry, I excelled at. And I was able to learn about music production. I was able to learn how to play the bass guitar, the drums, 
and that wasn't really learning from uh, students. That wasn't really learning from teachers. It, that was from other people I was hanging out with. Yeah. So everybody that I was a student with, we all learned from each other. We all played together. We all jammed. And that, that just became my, uh, it was as if somebody had created my future for me and put it into a, a college course and went, there you go. So for the first time in my life, I went, I'm great at this and I know how to do it and I love it. So when I came out of that, I came back down to Glasgow and uh, I, well, I had got, uh, I had done some work with the singing kettle, you know, the singing kettle. <laughs> yeah, I remember it well. I did some work with them um, and they, through that, I got a job because they toured theatres and through that, I got a job at the Bayer Theatre in St Andrews because I met uh, the artistic director. That's another one of these things, people that get put in your path. The artistic director there was a woman called Maggie Kinloch. And she said to me, because I had been doing shows with the singing kettle and stuff, she said to me, look, do you, do you want to be an actor? Because you're quite, you, you can act. I said, I never thought about it. So they gave me a job at the theatre. So I played Baloo in the Jungle Book. Um, and I did another couple of things. And then I did a Christmas show there. And uh, th that was my first kind of foray into acting. Um, and I really, I found that I really liked it. But then I went away again and, and forgot about acting for quite a long time. And I played piano and I DJed and uh, I did a lot of session singing. I sang a lot of adverts for Radio Clyde in the 90s. Um, and then the, the kind of other bizarre thing that happened was um, my friend Karen Dunbar got a job with Chewing the Fat. So we had been pals before that, um, and she'd made this series, Chewing the Fat, which the first series of, it wasn't until the second series of Chewing the Fat that it really took off. Like big people shouting, going to no day that in the, the street yeah. to them. And they decided to do a stage show of Chewing the Fat in the Citizens Theatre. And they wanted to do a panto ending with a, sing a song sheet. So they said to Karen, do you know anybody plays piano? She said, yeah, my mate Tom does. So they got me in to play the piano. And the last scene was set in a pub, basically the Klansman, <laughs> right? So it was the four old men and Karen being old Betty that uh, talked about the war. And they got me to play the piano, but they put me in a dress and made me an old woman. So I was like the first Iser. <laughs> <laughs> And we did, uh, we did songs at the end of that. So um, that transferred to the King's Theatre when Chewing the Fat really took off. And they started putting me in other sketches because they thought, oh, we need an extra guy for that own Villiers sketch. And we need an extra guy for that. Can you do it? Because you're not playing piano till the end anyway. I went, I am all right, that's fine. Then they said, why don't you just come and be in the TV version as well? <laughs> so I ended up in Chewing the Fat um, in series three and four by accident, just because I was there. And through that, uh, I got to know Philip Differ and Jonathan Watson, who were both working at the comedy unit at the same time. Jonathan Watson was doing Only an Excuse. So they said, why don't you come and be in Only an Excuse? So I ended up in Only an Excuse. I did about three or four years of that. And then I did a radio show with Jonathan Watson called Watson's Wind Up for seven years. And the comedy unit who produced all those shows like uh, Still Game and Chewing the Fat, they became my agents. 
So I ended up getting a lot more acting work. So the acting took over from the music. Um, and that all just happened, it just seemed like I fell into it, you know? It's just, the, again, I fell into something that was right there waiting. And uh, then when June the Fat ended, Karen and Bar got her own show, and I went on to do that with her, and I did four years with that. Um, and we formed a duo called Almost Angelic, and that, that did Who Let the Dogs Out, and all that. And that still, people still, it's on TikTok now, I think, actually. Um, and we, uh, that led on to the, 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 the kind of big thing that happened for me. And this is a real, you, you'll quite like this, I think, Stephen. This is a real fight for your dream thing. Um, I was doing a show, I was doing the radio show with Jonathan Watson, and there was an actress called Gabriel Quigley that was working with it, and she was going for an audition, and she was sitting reading the script. And I saw the script, and it was Tutti Frutti. Uh, by John Byrne, which was a massive TV show in the 80s that I absolutely adored. Robbie Coltrane was the lead character in it, Emma Thompson was in it, Morris Reeves, Richard Wilson, all these amazing actors had been in this TV show. It was written by John Byrne from Paisley, who's a legend, right? And I went, what? why have you got a script for that TV show? And, he went, and she said, oh, the National Theatre of Scotland are uh, doing a stage version of it that they've just formed and this is the launch show, the, the stage version of Tutti Frutti, it's a big musical. And I said, so the lead guy in that is a big fat guy that sings and plays the guitar and piano. And she went, oh, you'd be perfect for that. And I went, uh, 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 oh my God, who do I phone? So I got my agent Claire to phone who was at the comedy unit and she phoned them and they said, uh, well, it's, you know, we've had a look at his CV and there's not a lot of theatre on it. Um, and we're kind of looking for somebody that's been to drama college, and um, we've kind of we've got somebody in mind for the part. So thanks, but no thanks. So they told me that, and I went, "No, nah, <laughs> it's not happening. Not happening. I am perfect for this role. I'm gonna, I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get it." So I, pho I phoned them. I phoned the National Theatre of Scotland myself. Spoke to somebody in the office, and they said, "All right, okay. But look, no, it, I'm, I'm really, really sorry, but." Uh, we're not going to be able to see you for this. And I said, ah, oh, right, well, i tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to phone you every day until you agree to see me. And they went, OK, well, you can, you can do what you want, but, you know, it's not going to happen. I went, right, OK, that's fine. So I did. I phoned every day for three weeks. And they sort of got to know me in the office. They were sort of like, oh, how are you today? And I went, I'm fine, I'm fine. Can I get an audition yet? No, still no. Oh, OK, OK. And it became funny, you know, but I thought, if I don't do everything in my power to get this, I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. I'm going to absolutely regret it for the rest of my life. So I also got the comedy unit to phone them a few times as well and say, look, please see them, please see them. And they, they just kept saying no. They just kept saying, we're not interested. We've looked at his experience. He's, he's, he's not right for it. Um, and I knew a couple of people on the board of the National Theatre of Scotland and I phoned them and I went, can you put a word in for me? And they said, no, we can't really do that because it's not how it works. I went, fine. So eventually, I phoned one day and they said, right, the director, Tony, is going to be in the building on Friday. He's agreed that if you come in at quarter to five, he'll have a cup of coffee with you. That's the best we can do. And I said, right, okay, great. So, um, I went out and got a black suit and I quiffed my hair up and I took my guitar and I went into Glasgow 
and I went up to their offices and I, went in and I met the guy, had a coffee, and I said, I was in the room, just me and the director, and I went, please let me audition for this. And he said, well, I've looked at your CV and you've only done a couple of little tiny bits of theatre and this is the launch show for the National Theatre of Scotland. We can't, we can't go with somebody that, and I went, please just let me audition, just let me audition. So he went, okay. So he went and printed off a scene from the show and he gave me the scene and luckily I kind of knew it because it had been in the TV version. So I knew what the character was thinking. I knew. So I did that and he went, cool, thanks for that. And I went, can I sing you a song? And he went, well, it's not. It's not a music audition, you know. And I said, look, I brought my guitar, let me sing you a song. So I got the guitar out and I sung Love Hurts, which is the big song from the show. And at the end of that, he went, right, well, thanks for coming in. It's really nice to meet you. Um, see you later. And I went, fine. And I went home and I forgot about it because I thought, well, I, I did what I could. Yeah. I, I did what I could. So the following Tuesday, my agent Claire phoned and said, um, they want to see you again, can you go in and see them tomorrow? And I went, all right, okay, and she said, it's, it's, it's for a wee part in it. It's not the main guy, it's for a wee part in it, but would you still be interested in doing that? And I said, aye. So the part they were thinking about me for was the big brother that had died, but there was flashbacks on a video screen at the back. So I would be the big brother of the character I really wanted to play. So I thought, well, that's better than nothing. So I went in and it was all the cast were there and they were all really well known. And I was like, oh my God, really like daunting. Um, so they tried out, they, they put the band together, they got us to do a few songs. They got me reading some scripts with Don Steele who was playing Susie Kettles in it. Um, she was really well known, but she was dead nice to me. And I was like, oh God. And then the other guy who, uh, I think was going to be getting the part was there as well. And he was super well known. I'm not going to ever tell him who it was. <laughs> um, and I was going, I've got no chance, I've got no chance. And then, uh, so that all went well and I went home again. And then the following Monday, they phoned and went, you've got the part, you've got the main part. Wow. And, and I said, you're kidding me. And they said, nope, you've got the main part. Uh, they thought you were perfect for it. and they've decided to take a punt on you. So I got it. Um, it was huge. Uh, it was a big career launcher for me. Uh, it was the first thing I'd done that wasn't just bits and bobs. Yeah. I got to work with some incredible people, the National Theatre of Scotland. It, it ran for a year. And from doing that show, I got a really great London agent who I'm still with today, and they are the ones that have got the movie contacts, and uh, they, they're just wonderful. But it's really hard to get a really good London agent, and they had seen me in this show, and that's how I got that. So everything's like a stepping stone onto the next adventure. Wow. And uh, so then, by the time River City came along, they knew who I was because I'd done Tutti Frutti. So did they, the guys from River City, did they like appointment you? Or? Was it an audition? It was. It was. Uh, I knew a couple of the writers. A couple of the writers had been to see me at a play I did at Oren Moore, the play A Pie and a Pint series. Mm. And I had written a play with two of my pals, Matthew and Donald, and two of the writers were in the audience and they were, and they'd said, let's, let's create a character for Tottenham River City. But, 
they couldn't just do that. They had to audition people for it. So they wrote a character with me in mind. And they, they only told me this in retrospect. They said, we wrote it with you in mind, but we had no power over whether you'd be cast or not because we don't cast it. It was the producers and the casting directors that cast it. So I did have to go and audition for it. But the, the part was for a big fat guy that was a musician, you know? So I kind of thought, if they cast somebody else in this, I'll be raging. Because... <laughs> so, but it did take a couple of months um, before I heard anything about it. But then when I did hear about it, I, I got the part in River City and it was for two episodes. And uh, they told me the woman playing my mum was Una McLean, which I thought was incredible because I'd grown up watching her in Panto. Um, and she was a real hero of mine. She's like a Scottish Lucille Boyle. Lucille Ball, a comedy giant in there. So I went and did these two episodes of River City with Una uh, McLean. And before I'd finished filming the second one, they said, we're going to get you back for another four. So then they got me and Una back for another four. And then they said, look, just stay. So we stayed and I was there for, I think I was there for four years, four or five years. And that was an utter joy. That was incredible. And that's that's how people started knowing who I was. Because I was a big giant guy. <laughs> you can't put on a baseball cap and pretend, you know, when, when you're wearing the costume all the time, you know? So, and it was a great training ground for TV as well, because they are amazing out there. They're so good. The crew are incredible. The directors are incredible. And the... The other actors are a great team and they all help each other out. So I learned, I was working with people like Johnny Beatty and Una McLean and uh, Deirdre Davis, Libby MacArthur, Sally Howitt, Stephen Purden, all these actors that are great at it and that no television and that no camera work and everything. So I basically had a four or five year training in acting for TV and camera at that place. And uh, it was wonderful, absolutely wonderful. And oh, like, I remember you playing that role like so well, and it was like you just became really popular. Like just this guy just appeared from nowhere, and everybody knew who you were um, uh, as the character, at least anyway. Uh, um, I was just I was wondering the days like what was the attention like? How, I mean, uh, was it how did you deal with that attention? You must have had a lot of attention at that time. Yeah, um, it was in the beginning, it was brilliant because it was a buzz. Uh, it was like, uh, you know, if I was out with one of my pals and then somebody asked for a selfie, I'd be like, ah, check me out. I'm going to ask for a selfie, this is mental. But as I became uh, heavier and heavier and heavier and my mobility got really bad, uh, it became quite difficult. Um, because people would want to stand and talk and I couldn't really stand up for more than about 30 seconds at a time because my back would start feeling as if it was breaking. So I, that sort of kept me in the house. So I would stay in because I, I didn't want to upset somebody by not wanting to talk to them. It's really, really strange uh, situation to get into, but that was one of the factors that made me a bit reclusive um, I mean, nowadays, I will stand and talk for hours to somebody, you know, uh, it's absolutely fine, but yeah. there was a period where it did get a bit frightening, um, because up here, I mean, up here, it's as if I'm talking to somebody that's not from Scotland, River City's massive, <laughs> still game, it's, it's part of the culture, you know, people like Stephen that plays Shell Soup Bob, 
Um, I mean, I would call him a national treasure, but he calls himself a regional treasure for a joke. You know, I mean, I'm a regional treasure. Uh, everybody knows you, but people think you're the character. So a lot of people thought I was Bob, who's quite, who was quite simple and easygoing and kind of put upon. And I'm not really like that. I'm, I'm more kind of uh, in charge and uh, not as cheerful. I think probably. Um, and not as easy going. I can I can have my moments. Uh, so, Bob, when I was playing Bob, it was almost like it was a relief to play him because he was having quite a happy life, wandering about Shield Inch, and, and that place out there is like a little Truman Show. It's like a little world on its own. It's surrounded by security gates, and it's it's so authentically looks like Glasgow. But I ended up kind of feeling like I liked living there and I didn't like coming home. Because when I came home, I had the the depression and the, the anxiety, but it wasn't there when I was being Bob. It was really strange. And then when Bob was doing his exit storyline, which was rough, um, the two worlds collided. So uh, my worst fears were about taking Ill in the flat and having to get carried down the stairs by a team of people and then that's what they did in River City. Yeah. So when I filmed that last episode, I was in absolute bits with terror and anxiety and fear. Um, and looking back on it, I wouldn't do that again. I wouldn't put myself through that again. Uh, but that's just being older and wiser. You know, but at the time, I mean, I'm really glad in retrospect that I did it because I think it was a really important storyline. But it took me about a year after that to get where Bob had been in that episode of wanting to sort my life out. Um, so I had a year of real darkness after that of, of not leaving the house. And I, I left the house once a week to go and do a gig. And the gig was just sitting behind a piano singing. Uh, but. I couldn't have carried on at River City because my mobility was so bad that it was really difficult to do the job. It was really difficult for me and it was difficult for them. Okay. Is so, that you left? Did you leave River City or was it? Yeah, it was. It was like it just became. It became an unwritten kind of this can't go on. So they just kind of spoke to me and said, "Look, we're going to we're going to send them off." And I went, that's fine. I went, right, I'll go and do something else anyway. So that was fine. That's what happened. It was never a, you're fired. It was never a, I'm leaving. It just became a kind of thing. And they've had me back twice. I've been back twice already anyway. So it, it doesn't feel that I'm not con connected with them anymore. It just feels like, uh, I mean, I, I, I would go back, but I don't see it happening anytime soon. And that's fine. That's the way life happens, you know. But um, well, you don't know. You're on this podcast, and you know, on this. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's my experience, Stephen. As I've said before, things come out of the blue. Things you're not expecting come out of the blue. Train spotting came out of the blue. Yeah, let's that, that one. What oh, happened there, mate? Honestly, oh, right. That's just one of these things where you're you're standing there going, "How did I end up?" standing here, right. I was doing a radio show that I do called Fags, Mags and Bags for Radio 4. I've been doing it for about 10 years. It's with incredible people. It's with Donald McLeary and Sanjeev Kohli. 
and uh, my agent phoned and said, uh, you've got an audition for this film called, I can't even remember the name of the film. It, it was a strange title. And they said, but strictly between me and you, it's actually Trainspotting 2, but you can't tell anybody. <laughs> I went, you're kidding. So then I was doing this radio show and, and uh, I had to get away early for the audition. And I said, I've just got an audition. And one of the other cast went, well, I've got an audition as well. And I said, is it for Humphley Wumphley? You know, whatever name they'd made up. And he went, yeah. And I went, right, jump in the car and I'll give you a lift. And, and I said, it's Trainspotting 2, isn't it? Like, yeah, 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 yeah. So to drive up to Livingston, Went in and I was auditioning for the part of Begbie's cellmate that stabs him. Um, and I went in and did the audition and I saw them building the set. I walked past the, the, the big round bar they were building. I'm like, oh my God, they're actually doing this. They're actually doing transporting too. Can't believe it. And I'm auditioning for it, wow. And then they phoned up and said, uh, you didn't get the part you went for, but we've got this other part for you, um, which is actually just, the, the same size of role, but here's the premise. Do you want to do that? And I said, yep. So uh, the other part would have been me acting with Robert Carlyle, but this part was me acting with Ewan McGregor and Johnny Lee Miller. So I just kind of went, oh man. Well, either of these parts would have been amazing, but this one, I'm, I'm into it, it's four days. So it was filmed in Bells Hill. Uh, have you seen it? Yes. You know the scene. I'm, you know the scene I'm talking about. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, it's the scene in, in the in the Orange Lodge where um, uh, Sick Boy and uh, oh man, what is Johnny Lee Miller's character called? I can't remember. Ewan McGregor and Johnny Lee Miller's characters are going in and they're stealing everybody's wallets because they've figured out that everybody's pin number is sixteen ninety, right? <laughs> so they're in pickpocket and then I'm the bouncer and they try to get out and I don't let them out and I insist that they go up on the stage and sing. And it, it was, and it was, I had some like three or four lines in it, but I got to spend four days on that set with Danny Boyle and with Ewan McGregor and Johnny Lee Miller. And the extras that they had were all people that had either been in Trainspotting 1 or came from that background, the, the marching bands and all that kind of thing which I don't know anything about. I wasn't brought up in a religious household. Wasn't brought up Catholic or Protestant. I don't really understand any of it. I've never supported football, so I don't get any of that. None of it bothers me. I don't understand, so I don't get involved. But, so I had to play this guy who had a 1690 tattoo on his neck and a King Billy tattoo in my arm and all this. Kind of so it was, it was a riotous four days. It was two days in there and then two days somewhere else. And it was just a riotous, laugh. Uh, Danny Boyle, the director, was so nice. He was lovely to everybody. He knew everybody's name. He had a meal with me. He sat and chatted to me. He googled me. He knew about my stuff I'd done. Um, and Ewan McGregor and Johnny Lee Miller, I spent a lot of time hanging out with them. They were super nice. Uh, it just was a lovely, beautiful experience. And then when the movie came out, I had no idea it was going to be in because uh, they they all, you know, because I'd been cut out of a, another film that I had done previously and was in a bad mood about. Um, so I, I thought, well, I'm, I'm not mentioned names. Uh, I thought, I'm not going to count my chickens. But then I got invited to the premiere, not the big fancy premiere, the, the Glasgow premiere with the kind of other actors that had been bits and bobs in it. So me and these two other actors went, um, Simon Weir and Atta Jakob, and the three of us went, 
And I went, who were you in it? And they said, let's not tell each other who we were in it so that it's a surprise. So the three of us were sitting in the Glasgow premiere and I still didn't have any idea if this scene I was in was going to be in, but see when it came on, oh my God, the place erupted. And I thought, oh, right. Either I'm going to get pelters for this or people are going to love it. And luckily people loved it. And when I came out of the cinema and got my phone back because they were confiscating phones, my phone was ringing off the hook where, you know, the record and the sun and everybody going, because I had to sign a non-disclosure agreement because I couldn't tell them they had been in it. And they gave me a pound, they gave me a pound coin when I signed it and went, that's your payment for this secrecy thing. So you can't tell, you can't tell MD you're in Transport too. So nobody knew, a couple of my pals knew, but I hadn't told anybody. <laughs> my agent knew obviously, but they were keeping it so secret and so under wraps that none of us could say we were in it. So then when it came out, oh my God, it just went nuts. Yeah. It just went nuts. And I, I read a, a story that you, well, while you were filming, Unfortunately, you got a wee bit of a chest infection, had to go to the doctors. <laughs> Tell us about that story. Right. Well, what happened was, uh, at the end of the first day in that bar scene, I had been, I'd developed this hacking cough all day. And the tattoos that I had on were really high-grade movie tattoos that had been designed and were really expensive. And the makeup people had said to me, look, do you mind keeping these on? for a couple of days. They won't wash off in the shower anyway, but do you mind keeping them on so we don't have to keep reapplying them? Because it took a couple of hours to apply them. I said, hi, all right. But during that day, I got this bad cough and, and uh, one of the assistant directors said to me, could you please go and see your doctor in the morning before you come in tomorrow? Just because we've got to, for insurance purposes, we've got to say that you've been seen. So I said, I no bother. Phoned my doctor, explained about it. They said, yeah, just come in first thing. So I went in first thing, sat down in the waiting room and everybody was staring at me. And I thought, why is everybody staring at me? All right, must be River City. Right. But it was, it was odd staring at me. It wasn't the usual, there's Big Bob staring at me. It was really weird. And I went into my doctor's and I sat down and she just looked at me and went, what's that in your neck? I went, oh my God. And I still had 1690 in my neck and I had the red hand at Ulster in my arm. I forgot I had the tattoos on and I went, I, went into my, I went into the doctors sitting there covered in all these loyalist tattoos. They're all like, what's happened to Big Bob for a Oh, he's one of, oh mate, you're one of us, mate. And I'm like, I don't even know what you are, I don't understand it. <laughs> that's brilliant. I know. Ah, that's brilliant. Uh, one of the um, movies you've done some voiceover work for was called uh, Illusionist. And yeah. I must confess I've not seen it yet, but I, I, I'm going to watch it soon as, uh, but there was a, a another, I just want to keep in the theme of the funny stories, yeah. <laughs> another story that, and you can tell me if this is true or not, right. uh, but you missed the premiere for some reason. Yeah, I never checked my spam box. It went to your spam? Well, they sent me an email to invite me to the premiere of it and it went into my spam folder in my internet and then about, I don't know, about two months, I, I, I didn't even know I was... I didn't even know the name of it or I was in it. I had went and done a session for an unnamed film. Um, and then when they invited me to this premiere and I didn't reply, they obviously just thought, oh, well, stick. But I hadn't seen it because it went into my spam folder and I saw it about two months later. And I, I replied, I went, what's this? And they said, The Illusionist. I went, what? What's The Illusionist? What's that? Do you not remember? I went, oh, oh, I. What, what, what? And then the next thing I know, it's nominated for an Oscar. And then it's nominated for a Golden Globe. It wins a Golden Globe. 
And then I'm sitting watching the Oscars and the clip they use is one of the clips with my voice and I'm like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever... And it just, it, it's a beautiful, uh, it's a beautiful animated, odd, strange movie. Um, and there's no dialogue in it, it's all grunts and reactions and groans and I, and it's... So I'm all the way through it as various different things. Um, but it was a strange experience just to sit and watch the Oscars and see a clip of me being a Scotsman. <laughs> and I think I had about seven quid in my pocket at the time when I was watching it. No way. And they, didn't, they didn't invite you to the Oscars? No, because I mean, nobody knows it was in it. It was just Scottish voiceover actors. But uh, I mean, they had they had done the voiceovers before they animated it, so it was just going in, and they were saying, "Right, we want you to just be a drunk for two minutes." So I would just be a drunk for two minutes, and they said, "Now we want you to be a ventriloquist dummy for two minutes." I would do that, and then they took it all, and then slotted it all into this animation. It was really, really bizarre. Wow! And did you just go go home and just that's it? Forget? I forgot about it. Yeah. I forgot about it and I didn't, because re- I did quite a lot of these kind of things. But then every so often something, like another example was, uh, I went and did a vocal session, a singing session for somebody that had just recommended me and I went in. And all I had to do was uh, sing, in my arms, baby, yeah. That's all I had to do. Um, they said, that's all we want you to sing. And I went, fine. So I went in and I went, in my arms, baby, yeah. They went, thanks very much, there you go. So I went home. A year later, I was in HMV, and there was a song on, and it was me going, in my arms, baby, yeah, in my arms, baby, yeah. And I went up and, up, and I asked the guy behind the counter, I went, what's that? And he went, oh, it's like, um, it's like number seven. <laughs> wow. It's uh, Milo in my arms, it's from Destroy Rock and Roll, and I'd done another track for him as well. So I bought the CD, there it was. Vocals by Tom Beauty. <laughs> and then they told me. I, I think I, I, I just go through my life doing things like this, doing a thing and forgetting about it and then suddenly noticing it. Like, there was another one. There's hundreds of these. There was another one. I was watching a movie in Amazon Prime. The Scottish movie. I went, oh, this looks quite good. And now you're into it. I pop up as a butcher. I don't even remember doing it. <laughs> no way. About three lines. I went, when did I do that? And then I phoned the guy who directed it. He went, do you remember that Sunday? I thought that was a wee street film. No. Oh, <laughs> I wish I'd got paid now. It's on Amazon Prime. That's brilliant. And through, like, that, <laughs> that's just amazing. It, you're just working so hard that you just... You know, and these are all we play. No, it's not about working hard. It's just about being absent-minded, Stephen. It's just about being, you know, wandering through life going, what? Uh, uh, all right. What, what is, um, what, what's been your biggest highlight of your career so far? <sighs> oh, do you know what it, do you know what it is? Um, and it's something that you probably wouldn't expect last year last year was the highlight of my career the whole year was the highlight of my career because i got to do some amazing stuff the the musical highlight of my career and the acting highlight of my career both happened last year the, the acting highlight of my career was 
in a film called Elizabeth is Missing. And I got to do a scene with Glenda Jackson. And you can Google Glenda Jackson. She won Best Actress Oscar twice. She's the most incredible actress, genuinely a Hollywood legend. And she was making this film and I got a part in it. It was a two-hander scene between me and her. And I had grown up watching her in Hollywood movies. Amazing. And I got to do, I was a police sergeant and she was coming in and we had an argument. And I got to act with Glenda Jackson and that is my acting career highlight. It's just breathtaking. Please Google her after you've seen this and you'll see who I mean, right? Unbelievable, complete Hollywood hero. Uh, the musical highlight was last year as well. Uh, because of the Chew and the Fat guys always use the same people that they, they started with. They've got the same makeup artists, they've got the same director, they've got the same uh, costume people. It's a family, it's like a, a, rep, a repertory theatre. So anytime they need music, they get me, going back to the days when I was playing the piano for them. So the three, they've done three big still game live shows at the Hydro. Uh, so the first one I wrote a song for and did a couple of bits of music for. The second one I wrote some incidental music for, but then this year, last year, they said, we want to do a full scale musical in the Hydro as the still game farewell. So I got to write Still Game, the musical. I got to write all the songs with Ford and Greg. So not only did I get to write them, but I got to produce all the music and MD it as well, get all the singing and everything. So it was about four months work. And I got to see, uh, I got to see my music being performed in the Hydro by these incredible, incredible actors that I loved and 13,000 people per show. Um, so there was something like nine or 10 songs in it that I had co-written with Ford and Greg. And that was, that felt like, um, it was so rewarding for me just to sit in that hydro and hear people laughing and watching people enjoy what I'd worked really hard for and on. And to be there at the end of Still Game as well as having been there at the very, very beginning, felt beautiful and it felt really emotional and it felt, um, it was all really, it was all full circle. And, and the fact that they trusted me to do that, Michael Hines, the director, Ford and Greg and Karen and everybody else, Paul and Mark and, and Jane and Gavin and, and, and Sanj, all know me and all we all trusted each other and it all just was it was really hard work and there was a lot of challenges and I did get angsty about it but we ended up creating this great farewell for, for what had become a Scottish institution and I had been in Still Game in one episode in the second series which still gets shouted at me about snowballs and Empire Biscuits but I've been, I've worked on Still Game behind the scenes all the way through. So there's other bits I've done and they always keep me in mind and they always get me back and they always use me again. And for that, that's that's an incredible um, gift that, 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 that comes up every two or three years. They get me back to do stuff. And it's it just feels like, it, it feels like being a wee part of a big Scottish iconic thing. Still Game, everybody loves it. Fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. 
and so Tom, if people are like they're listening to this or watching this and and they're thinking to themselves, wow, it, like I want to do what Tom is doing. I want to do the music. I want to do the acting stuff. Uh, like I, you know, I just I want to get into that space. I want to be on the next still game or the next um, train spot movie or whatever it may be. What would your advice be to that person? Be nice. Don't take no for an answer. Don't think that anything's impossible. And there's an element of luck to it that I don't know how to explain. So I don't know how to give the advice on the luck, but be nice. I've not always been nice. I've not always been nice. I, 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 I like an argument. So, uh, and, and I can see how sometimes that stood in the way of, of uh, stuff, but uh, see if you're easy to work with. That's 50, 60% of the battle. Then the talent on top of that is, is there you go. But um, be nice, work hard, don't ever give up. Don't take no for an answer. And I don't know the last one. The last one's the secret ingredient. That's brilliant. And so, if they like, because this would be the follow-up question, I would imagine they'd be like, "But Tom, where do I start?" Um, if you're a kid, you start by getting involved in youth theatre or getting involved in drama at school. If you're an adult, a great way to do it, because it's very different nowadays than it used to, is amateur dramatics. The amateur dramatic societies put on huge professional-type shows now. I mean, it's not at the moment, not this year. This year, just don't don't bother. This year, just. <laughs> Just stay in the house this year, but once we emerge from this, get yourself doing stuff, create something for yourself, write your own stuff, make your own content for the internet, for example. Yeah. Um, speak to people that have done it, work with people, ask them how they did it, um, and just believe in yourself, believe that you're able to do it. There's some things you might not be able to, there's things I can do, but I still give it a bash. Really? Absolutely proud. And what is um, Free Truths Tom Loves by? <sighs> Nothing's ever as bad as it seems. We're not put on earth to be miserable and upset and sad. Figure out how to love even a tiny little bit of yourself and it'll grow from there. Amazing, Tris. Amazing. So I'll put you on the spot with that one. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, Tom, how, what's the best way for people to see your stuff, connect with you? Where's the best to get in? Connect? Uh, I just go on, you know, social media. I'm never off it. Um, I'm on Facebook, but the probably best place is Instagram. Um, I've been making a lot of content over the summer, but I, I work a lot in a club in Dundee called Ducks Latteries, which is a, it's not a club, it's a show bar where uh, I present and perform in a show every Saturday night. Um, and I don't know what the future holds, but within the next few weeks, uh, entertainment venues are going to be able to start putting things on again, so who knows? Um, I, I'm more, I've kind of came back round to being a musician again, more than acting. 
Um, so I'm more into music right now. So uh, I, the answer is, Stephen, I don't know because none of us know where we're going at the moment. <laughs> and I have to just live in the present like everybody else because there's no guarantees where we're going to go. I normally do panto every year with Darren Connell. Yeah. Uh, I know it's a mutual friend and Darren Connell is my wee brother. We are so close. He's a comedy genius. He's a lovely guy. And I'm going to miss doing panto with him this year because we have such a laugh every year. Yeah. We, were the ugly, we were the ugly sisters a couple of years ago. It was hysterical. There was like two Les Dawson's on stage. It just was. It was just very, very funny. And he's, he's, he's got, he's got something about him that you see in these classic old American comedians. Yeah. I, I can't put my finger on it, but he's got that kind of Marx Brothers thing going on. Uh, he's got a kind of Bill Hicks thing. It's, you, you can't pigeonhole him, and, and I think he's. I think he's got a huge future, Darren, uh, and I, I hope that something happens that people can see that. Yeah, totally, totally agree with you that. Uh, well, Tom, thank you so much for joining me for taking the risk to be on my first episode. Aye, all right. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure just chat, chatting with you and hearing about your life and hearing about your story. And I just know other people just want to get a lot out of this. So just thank you so much, my friend. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Paul.